This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It was a hot summer day in Houston, Texas, in July of 1984, when the last living unicorn was discovered. Or so the story goes, according to the spokespeople of Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. Lancelot the Living Unicorn turned up one day at a tent after the circus arrived for their Houston engagement. A tall tale to be sure, but the real story wasn't that much stranger. In 1980, self-proclaimed wizard Oberon Zell conducted a series of experiments that explored the genetic manipulation of goats. The result was a living, breathing, tin can-eating unicorn. Donning a wizard's robe and staff, Zell toured the country, eventually bringing his unicorn to the attention of the circus. By 1984, Lancelot found a new home at Ringling Brothers. But Lancelot's fame also attracted the attention of the Humane Society. After they visited Lancelot, their concern grew. Where they were expecting to find a normal goat with a horn glued to its head, they found something even more astonishing. There was a single, naturally growing horn sprouting from the center of Lancelot's forehead. Was Lancelot a genetic mutation? Or was he really the last living member of an elusive mythical species? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our first episode on the unicorn. Believed to be a wild, one-horned, horse-like creature with magical powers, unicorns have appeared everywhere from the Bible to your favorite Lisa Frank Trapper Keepers. 
For this mythological mystery, we've recruited our friend Vanessa, host of ParCast's new podcast, Mythology, which premieres next week. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Every week on Mythology, we present and investigate humanity's most important myths and their role in human history, from religion to art, science, and contemporary culture. Vanessa is joining Unexplained Mysteries today for the first of two special crossover episodes, exploring the mysteries and mythology of unicorns. Molly and I will talk about real-world events and share some theories about the unicorn legend, while Vanessa will take us into the world of myth and folklore surrounding these fantastical creatures. The unicorn myth is one of the world's most enduring magical creature stories, possibly because unicorns in art and literature often represent central human concepts like purity, fertility, and power. Unicorns also have a special place in Christian symbolism. Today, the zoological community considers the unicorn to be a creature of fantasy. But for thousands of years, the unicorn was believed to be a very real, if elusive, creature. In today's episode, we'll trace the emergence of the unicorn's legend beginning in 1800 BCE, and we'll explore theories of what a unicorn really is. Next week, we'll discuss evidence of the unicorn's existence and highlight the hunt for the living unicorn. Was the unicorn just a legend? And if not, where has it been hiding all these years? The strangest thing about unicorns is that until relatively recently, i.e. the late 1800s, humanity was convinced they existed. Today, unicorns appear in fantasy novels, on children's television shows, as toys and as knickknacks. But when descriptions of unicorns were first recorded in the ancient world, they were written alongside travelers' accounts of other foreign but very real creatures. This went on for the next thousand years or more. No one had ever seen or caught this creature, but that certainly didn't mean it wasn't out there. According to mythical belief, the unicorn is a shy creature, living deep in the forest and rarely venturing near people. The creature is white and has a four-legged body like a horse. Sometimes the unicorn has cloven hooves like a goat. Most importantly, the unicorn has a long, white, spiraled horn protruding from its forehead. The classic unicorn was often associated with purity and healing powers. A number of stories closely linked the unicorn with another character archetype, the virgin or maiden, whose purity was the only thing that could tame the unicorn. The figure of the unicorn has shown up in pictures and carvings since the early days of civilization in the Fertile Crescent in what is known today as the Middle East. Carved before any surviving human writing, unicorns decorate walls and pottery from ancient Persia, Mesopotamia, and the Indus Valley. Elaborately carved stone seals left behind by the same civilizations also depict unicorns. These carvings portray the unicorn as a creature with a single horn and the body of a cow or goat. Although stories of unicorns predate written language, one of the very first recorded tales that has been linked to the unicorn legend came from the Epic of Gilgamesh, an epic poem from ancient Mesopotamia written around 1800 BCE. The poem tells of the feats of a great king of Uruk named Gilgamesh. 
In the first half of the story, a character named Enkidu is introduced as a wild, incredibly strong man living among the creatures of the wilderness. Enkidu appears to a hunter and foils his attempts to kill any animals. The hunter observes him eating grass and drinking from watering holes like the beasts he lives with. The hunter, frustrated with Enkidu's penchant for freeing trapped animals, goes to the court of Gilgamesh for help. The king tells the hunter to bring Enkidu to him. The hunter uses a woman named Shamat as bait to calm the wild man. Shamat, a sacred temple courtesan, shows Enkidu the ways of humankind through erotic love. After his time with Shamat, the creatures of the wild reject Enkidu, and he journeys to the court of Gilgamesh to join the world of man. The story of the woman taming something wild with her feminine powers eventually became a central part of the Western unicorn legend as we know it today. In this tale, Shamat's sexuality tames Enkidu and introduces him to the world of men, teaching him that his base urges can become sophisticated by the influence of civilization. The concept of a wild man tamed by a sophisticated woman appears again in the ancient Indian saga, the Mahabharata, first written down around 300 BCE, but from an oral tradition that was much older. Similarly to the story of Enkidu, a wild man at one with nature is drawn from his life in the forest by the wiles of a woman. Ancient tales really had a thing about pairing women's sexuality with corruption. The important development in this version of the tale can be found in the name of the wild man himself, Rishya Shringa, also known as Gazelle Horn. He is marked by a single gazelle's horn that sprouts from his forehead. So we now have two different iterations of a similar motif. Wild men, who represent the innocence of nature, are co-opted by women who represent both the knowledge and the corruption of civilization. By 300 BCE, a single horn had been thrown into the mix. However, a one-horned man is a far cry from the magical horned horses that decorate nurseries today. In 398 or 397 BCE, a Greek natural philosopher named Theseus of Cnidus wrote a record of the natural history and peoples of India named Indica. While now much of what Theseus has written can be dismissed as fantastic tales and conjecture, at the time, his work was seen as a comprehensive manual on India based on facts and observations. Amongst accurate descriptions of animals, such as the Indian elephant and parrot, Theseus wrote the following, Quote, There are in India certain wild asses which are as large as horses and larger. Their bodies are white, their heads dark red, and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn on the forehead, which is about a foot and a half in length. The base of this horn, for some two hands breadth above the brow, is pure white. The upper part is sharp and of a vivid crimson, and the remainder, or middle portion, is black. Those who drink of these horns made into drinking vessels are not subject to convulsions or to epilepsy. Indeed, they are immune even to poison if they drink wine, water, or anything else from these beakers. The animal is exceedingly swift and powerful, so that no creature, neither the horse nor any other, can overtake it. They will not desert their offspring and fight with horn, teeth, and heels, and they kill many horses and men." End quote. 
a beautiful horned animal with magical healing powers, the modern unicorn was born. We'll learn more about this magic creature in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. Indica was a great influence on many early works of natural history. The Indian ass appeared in Aristotle's History of Animals, as well as Pliny the Elder's Natural History. Pliny the Elder's beliefs about the natural world and its creatures, specifically about the unicorn, are significant as they went unchallenged in European minds for the next 1,500 years. So what was the Indian ass that Theseus wrote about? Was there really a unicorn wandering around India in the 4th century BCE? And if so, what happened to it? American scientist Odell Shepard proposed a theory for the origin of the Indian ass in his 1930 book, The Lore of the Unicorn. According to Shepard, Theseus' account of the Indian ass had a fatal flaw. Instead of depending on direct observation and scientific study, the Indian ass in Indica had come to Theseus via traveler stories and folktales. Shepard, like Theseus, was a literary scholar and not an experienced zoologist, and therefore held a dim view of studying natural history in a library. Since Theseus had not gone to India and observed the creature itself, Shepard thought instead that the identity of the Indian ass may not have been as straightforward as the unicorn that Theseus wrote about. Instead, he conjectured that the creature could be a chimera, or combination, of a few different animals. The first thing to take into account regarding the ancient Indian ass is location, location, location. By virtue of being an Indian creature, the most common explanation for the one-horned Indian ass is actually the one-horned Indian rhinoceros. A large, powerful, unpredictably wild animal with a single horn, the rhinoceros seems like an easy fit. The famous explorer Marco Polo thought as much when he wrote about his encounters with so-called unicorns during his travels across the East in 1300. He wrote, quote, There are wild elephants and plenty of unicorns, which are scarcely smaller than elephants. They have the hair of a buffalo and feet like an elephant's. They have a single large black horn in the middle of the forehead. They have a head like a wild boar's and always carry it stooped towards the ground. They spend their time by preference wallowing in mud and slime. They are very ugly brutes to look at. They are not at all as such as we describe them when we relate that they let themselves be captured by virgins." End quote. Picture a rhinoceros. A large, elephantine creature, the Indian variant, weighs in at over 5,500 pounds. Its body is tank-like, its legs are short, and its feet have three partially hoofed toes. 
Since it is so large, it is not an exceedingly fast animal. While it has a single horn, it sprouts from the end of the rhino's nose rather than, as Marco Polo said, from the center of its forehead. It's a bit of a far cry from the elegant, fleet-footed animal the word unicorn conjures. In addition, by the time of Theseus, the rhinoceros was already known to the Greeks. Its name is even Greek, coming from the words for nose and horn. Since humanity had not yet hunted them to endangerment, rhinos were widely known in Theseus' time. Rhinos also didn't quite fit all the parameters of Theseus' descriptions. In Indica, he made the claim that, quote, the animal is exceedingly swift and powerful so that no creature, neither the horse nor any other, can overtake it, end quote. However, a rhino's running speed tops out at about 25 miles per hour as compared to a horse's 45 miles per hour. It doesn't seem like a perfect match. And as evinced by its very name, the rhinoceros's horn was on its nose, not in the center of its forehead. Even in the wild, rhino horns seldom reach longer than a foot, much less the foot-and-a-half-long horn of the Indian ass. What rhinos do have in common with the ancient unicorn is their valuable horns. Rhino horns were prized for their supposed healing qualities, much like unicorn horns, which supposedly detected and neutralized poisons. Their aggressive and unpredictable personalities also call to mind the wild will of the unicorn, In the lore of the unicorn, scientist Odell Shepard theorized that the rhinoceros definitely influenced the unicorn myth, but it was only part of the equation. On the Tibetan plateau lives an enigmatic, rarely seen animal that is known for its incredible speed and power. Called the chiru, or the Tibetan antelope, this reddish-brown animal is the size of a large goat and sports two straight, slender black horns that reach a height of up to two feet, much closer to the length cited by Theseus in 398 BCE. Shepard's theory states that the animals, skittish around humans, look to have only one horn in profile. Since it was very hard to get close to them, the theory is that people who caught a glimpse of the Cheru often only were able to see them from the side and from very far away. From these sightings came the story of a one-horned animal living on the plateau. In Shepard's opinion, this is where the unicorn gets its reputation for its aloof nature. The Cheru, like the unicorn, is incredibly fast, seldom seen, and has few interactions with humans. In addition, Cheru horns have been used for more than 2,000 years as a cure-all and antibiotic in local natural medicine. Before the advent of modern medicine and our understanding of how viruses and disease affect the body, a popular thing to blame sickness on was poisoning. Even today, we refer to conditions like septicemia as blood poisoning. Since Cheru horns were used to treat all manner of diseases, it only makes sense they gained a reputation for neutralizing poisons, or in those cases, harmful microbes. However, there is no evidence today that Cheru horns actually have any healing or antimicrobial properties. There is a third animal that rounds out the unicorn triumvirate. In his book, The Natural History of Unicorns, Dr. Chris Lavers takes issue with the third animal Odell Shepard proposed. In his original work, Shepard wrote that the final ingredient to the unicorn mixture was that of the onager, also known as the Persian ass. 
Theseus describes the Indian ass as similar in size to a horse, swift, fierce, and fond of fighting with its heels, all traits that the onager shares. Blavers brings to attention the fact that Theseus, who was born in Greece and lived in Persia, would be very familiar with the wild and domestic asses found in both countries. Therefore, it's strange to assume that the onager, an animal known to him, would form part of the unicorn puzzle. However, there is another animal brought up by Lavers that often appears in close proximity to the Chiru and Indian rhino. The real third piece to the unicorn puzzle is the Kiong, the largest of all wild asses. Looking very much like a large mule, Kiongs are notoriously stubborn animals. They're incredibly swift and easily outrun the native Tibetan ponies of the area. Notably, Kiangs have red backs and muzzles with white bellies, similar to Theseus's description of an animal with a red head and white body. Males are also known for fighting ferociously against rival Kiangs, especially with their teeth and heels. So here's one explanation for the unicorn, a commingling of characteristics of three separate animals from the Tibetan plateau and Himalayan slopes. The unicorn gained its speed, ferocity, and coloring from the Kiong. Its swiftness, aloof nature, and long, medically potent horns from the Chiru, and its single horn from the rhinoceros. A simple answer for a long gestating question. Maybe, or maybe not so simple. While the identity of the Indian ass has been solved, that wasn't the only source of record for the ever-enigmatic unicorn. The Egyptian city Alexandria had, by the third century BCE, become the greatest center of knowledge in the ancient world. It was a cultural center of learning, bringing together scholars from Greek, Egyptian, Jewish, Muslim, and Germanic backgrounds. The crown jewel of the city was the fabled Royal Library of Alexandria, a sprawling research center that at its height was estimated to house almost half a million papyrus scrolls. The library, an attached museum, or institution of the muses, attracted the greatest minds of the time. Euclid, Archimedes, and Erisistratus all studied there. Beyond simply storing knowledge, the library acted as an early sort of research institute. The Greek king of Egypt, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, gathered 72 Jewish scholars, six each from the 12 tribes of Israel, and set them to work translating the Torah, also known as the Old Testament, from Biblical Hebrew into Ancient Greek. This Septuagint, from the Latin meaning 70, went to work in 72 different chambers in the Great Library. They worked tirelessly for 72 days, at the end of which they presented the king with 72 different translations of the Torah. These 72 translations were compiled into one full, exhaustive Greek translation of the Torah. This version, completed in 132 BCE, became the basis for the Christian Old Testament used today. During their translation, a mysterious creature appeared in the text that none of the Septuagint had heard of, the Rem. This animal's archaic Hebrew name was unfamiliar to the scholars, and they did not know what the word rem could have referred to. This was a common problem plaguing the translators, as the bulk of the Torah had been written over a thousand years before, between 1400 to 400 BCE. It was natural that there were places and things that seemed foreign to them. It was literally ancient history. 
The Torah described the ram as horned, as real as any other beast, and strong enough to be considered an imposing animal. So the ancient scholars, unsure what the ram actually was, settled on the Greek term, monoceros, meaning one-horned. When the Bible was translated into Latin in 405 CE, monoceros became unicornus. And for the next 1,500 years, there were very real unicorns in the Bible. Unicorns would often pop up as symbols of strength and godlike might. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of the unicorn. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. Its horn is mentioned in Psalms chapter 92, verse 10. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. Whereas Tezius' secular Indian ass had been explained away as an amalgamation of three separate animals, that same solution doesn't quite fit the unicorn of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was older than Indica by almost 1,000 years. And as evidenced by the passage 1,000 years ago, a creature translated as unicorn was as well known to the Jewish people of the Near East as any bull, goat, or sheep mentioned by the text. So if the Old Testament unicorn wasn't a chiru, rhinoceros, or kyong, what was it? In 1663, the French scholar Samuel Beauchard finally, after 30 years of work, published his masterpiece, Hierozoicon. Beauchard was a genius, reportedly fluent in a dozen languages. He authored works ranging from an Arabic dictionary to an extensive critique of the Bible. Beauchard's Hierozoicon, based on the work of Arab scholars on the life of animals, was an analysis of the natural and historical significance of the animals found in the Bible. Boshar took particular interest in the rem, the original Hebrew name for the creature that had been translated by the Septuagint as unicorn. He quickly dismissed the rhinoceros as a candidate for the rem, as it was not native to Palestine or Arabia, where the original writers of the Old Testament lived. We now know that it may have been possible for the authors of the Old Testament to have heard of a rhinoceros, as there were trade routes at the time connecting the Near East and India. However, Beauchard did not think that they would consider putting an animal from so far away in the text. His theory was that instead, the rem referred to a breed of Arabian oryx called a rim. He postulated that there must have once been a subspecies of rim that only sported one long horn. The names are certainly similar, and the Arabian oryx is a strong, wild creature with long, prominent horns. The problem with his theory was that there never was any sort of one-horned Arabian oryx. Neither in any written record nor in nature itself has a one-horned Arabian oryx subspecies appeared. So the rim may not be the same as the biblical ram. But what if the Septuagint's translation was wrong? Nothing in the passages mentioning the rem referred to a single horn. However, the 72 had collectively decided that the creature was a one-horned unicorn. And by the 19th century, the unicorn had been steeped in 1,500 years of religious tradition. Could an error in translation or some ancient artistic license have sent countless scholars down a unicorn rabbit hole? 
Or could unicorns have been hiding in plain sight? We'll find out where the unicorn may have lived in a moment. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. In 1835, English Army officer Henry Rawlinson was studying the inscription accompanying a bas-relief carved into a cliffside at Mount Behistun in modern-day Iran. The inscription was written in the time of a king called Darius the Great and was written in three different cuneiform script languages, Old Persian, Elamite, and Babylonian. While serving as the British consul at Baghdad, Rawlinson had traveled to Behistun to attempt to translate the cuneiform inscription. Much like hieroglyphics before the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, cuneiform had yet to be cracked. Rawlinson began studying the inscriptions in earnest, and by 1838 had completely translated the cuneiform writing of the old Persian inscription. This paved the way for the translation of the matching Elamite and Babylonian scripts giving linguists and archaeologists further insight into these never-before-translated cuneiform alphabets. By 1851, nearly 200 ancient Babylonian characters had been translated, giving linguists the ability to read Mesopotamian texts that had previously been impenetrable. As more ancient texts were being translated, a new wrinkle was made in Bouchard's argument about the biblical unicorn. Descriptions of a strange creature began to appear in Babylonian cuneiform tablets scattered across what was once Mesopotamia. The animal, called Rimu by ancient Mesopotamians, was a powerful and frightening creature that had been worshipped by them. While it's unknown when the creature died out in the Near East, it may have been seen in the flesh by the original Hebrew authors of the Torah. The Rimu, known as the aurochs to Germanic peoples, was a type of wild ox that lived in Eurasia from the end of the last ice age until 1627, when the last female died in Poland. It was the forefather of nearly 1,000 breeds of domestic cow. A giant animal, the aurochs was said to have a shoulder height of four and a half to almost seven feet. They were swift, powerful creatures that did not fear humans and often fought viciously during the mating season. When you take this theory into account, the biblical mentions of unicorns seem to make a bit more sense. Take, for instance, this new Aurochs-inclusive reading of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of aurochs, 
With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. A large, powerful bull pushing people to the ends of the earth makes more sense than a single-horned oryx or mythical unicorn. But the unicorn had over a thousand years of religious tradition under its belt. The creature held a very important position in religious Christian art. The people of the Middle Ages did not necessarily believe the unicorn walked the earth. Instead, they began to believe it was a symbol for Jesus Christ himself. Christian scholars have long been obsessed with symbolism and finding deeper meanings in the Bible. As early as a century after the New Testament was written, Christian scholars were delving into the Old Testament in search of prophetic references to Jesus Christ and Christianity. A lawyer named Tertullian of Carthage was one of the first to connect the unicorn to Jesus Christ in an analysis made sometime after 160 CE. He compares the unicorn's horn mentioned in Deuteronomy to the center post of the crucifix and argues that it's a symbol of Jesus Christ. To early Christians, interpretations like this strengthened their faith. They knew that Jesus was the Son of God because, in their eyes, he kept appearing in a religious text written over a thousand years before he was born. Arguments like Tertullian's should be taken with a grain of salt. Tertullian wanted to create a connection between Jesus and the Old Testament. It's also important to consider the agenda of some of the early Christian scholars. Tertullian's analysis in which he discusses the unicorn was tellingly entitled, Against the Jews. Not exactly an unbiased interpretation. However, his assertion that the unicorn in the Bible was a symbol for Christ stuck. Humanity had now begun to shift from the idea that the unicorn was a real but rare creature on Earth to the idea that the unicorn was a symbol of Christianity. One of the most popular Christian legends regarding the unicorn is that it's a wild beast and can only be soothed by the charms of a virgin. Once calmed, hunters are then able to capture or kill it. This story has its roots in the wild man stories found in the Epic of Gilgamesh and other ancient works. The Christian tale of the unicorn and the virgin is written about in an influential text called Physiologus. Written at the end of the second century CE and structured as sort of a combination bestiary and Aesop's fables for Christians, the book tells a series of tales about fantastic animals and presents them as allegories about Christ. The tale of the unicorn goes like this, quote, Unicornus the unicorn, which is also called rhinoceros by the Greeks, is of the following nature. He is a very small animal like a goat, excessively swift, with one horn in the middle of his forehead, and no hunter can catch him. But he can be trapped by the following stratagem. A virgin girl is led to where he lurks, and there she is sent off by herself into the woods. He soon leaps into her lap when he sees her and embraces her, and hence gets caught." End quote. The story sounds much like a sanitized version of the Enkidu story from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Shamat, the temple courtesan, is replaced by a virgin, and Enkidu is replaced by a unicorn. The virgin tames the unicorn and brings him into the world of man, much in the same way Shamat brought Enkidu into society. According to Physiologus, in this story, the unicorn representing Christ is small, as Christ was humble. The animal's single horn represents the unity of the father and son. 
The unicorn is brought into the sphere of men by a virgin, just as the Virgin Mary brought Jesus into the realm of humanity. The hunter is akin to the will of God, since God is the controlling force of the world. This story of the unicorn would be repeated throughout bestiaries and religious works for the next 1,600 years, cementing the relationship between the unicorn and Christ. Medieval Christians, huge fans of making allegorical works as complicated and multi-layered as possible, created more and more complex and meaning-laden artworks until one had to have a doctorate to unravel them. By the beginning of the Renaissance, Depictions of the Virgin and the Unicorn, a very popular motif in Christian art, had begun to change. The hunters in these artworks took on a myriad of roles over the years. Sinners who assassinated Jesus, servants of God killing Jesus so he can be reborn, and finally, by 1500, seekers of salvation. Romantic, secular interpretations of the unicorn in these works also became popular. These interpretations associated the unicorn with erotic love, with the unicorn's horn becoming a phallic symbol. Religious and secular ideas about the unicorn became more mixed until it was hard to unravel the two. The unicorn had become a complicated idea. Was it a metaphor? An allegory for Christ? Was it ever really a living animal? By 1850, the Countess de la Rochefoucauld of La Roche, France, had already spent many years trying to solve a family mystery. Generations before she had been born, her ancestor Louis-Alexandre de la Rochefoucauld, Duc de la Rochefoucauld d'Anville, had met his end at the guillotine during the French Revolution. The La Rochefoucauld family were French nobility, which therefore made them a target of the revolution. They were forced to flee their chateau when the peasants revolted, leaving many family treasures and priceless works of art behind. Now, 100 years later, the Countess was close to recovering one of the family's most precious possessions, a set of beautiful woven tapestries. Following a tip about some old curtains in a barn, she discovered a measure of cloth being used to cover potatoes and other vegetables. Upon closer inspection, the Countess realized she had found it, the remaining damaged tapestries of the Hunt of the Unicorn. Woven between 1495 and 1505 in Paris, and now housed at the cloisters in New York City, the intensely intricate The Hunt of the Unicorn is a series of seven tapestries portraying the hunt and slaying of a unicorn. Across the course of the seven tapestries, a hunting party pursues a unicorn before using a virgin to lure it to its death. The simplest panel in the collection is arguably the most layered. The final panel, the unicorn in captivity, depicts the unicorn, alive but wounded, in a field under a tree and encircled by a small, round paddock. According to Laver's analysis in The Natural History of Unicorns, the scene has both a popular religious and pagan interpretation. Through Christian eyes, the unicorn is a Christ figure, and the tapestry tells the story of his resurrection in heaven. The unicorn, having been killed in the hunt in an earlier panel, is now resurrected in a round paddock, round being indicative of heaven. 
the unicorn is chained to a tree representing the tree of redemption. The creature's wounds are bleeding pomegranate juice, with seeds appearing in some of them. In Christian tradition, pomegranates were a symbol of new life and resurrection. But by looking at the same image through secular eyes, a much different crop of pagan symbols appears. The male unicorn, subdued by the charms of a woman, is now chained to a tree. Trees have long been an ancient symbol of feminine energy as they provide sustenance through their fruit and bear new life once a year. The circular paddock represents a woman's womb, a place of new life. The pomegranate juice and seeds have long signified male fertility, especially in ancient Greek culture. By virtue of a more pagan interpretation, this panel can be interpreted as describing a heterosexual couple represented by the unicorn and the tree, bonded by love and their hope for fertility to create new life. By the time the hunt of the unicorn was woven, people were no longer looking in far-off countries for unicorns. It was widely accepted that they were fantastical creatures, either a symbol of Christianity or of Romantic-era ideas. By the 1500s, unicorns had long since passed into the realm of legend. With scant evidence of its existence, humanity preferred instead to think of the animal as a symbolic figure, both in religious and secular contexts. Unicorns have appeared in artwork as far back as ancient Mesopotamia, long before anything recorded in the Old or New Testament. They appear time and time again in travelers' logs, bestiaries, and natural histories. Which prompts the question, if the unicorn never truly existed, where did these stories and depictions come from? The rhinoceros, Cheru, and Kyang were a likely explanation for at least Theseus's unicorn. But what about other unicorn sightings from the Far East and Africa? Next week, we'll explore physical evidence for the existence of unicorns. Where were the unicorn horns people began trading during the Renaissance coming from? How exactly could one create a unicorn like Lancelot, the last living unicorn? And could there exist indisputable proof that unicorns once roamed the Earth? Thanks for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. That's also where you can find episodes of Vanessa's new podcast, Mythology, when it premieres next week. If you enjoyed this episode, check them out. Thank you both. I'm looking forward to coming back next week for part two. You can find information on all of Parcast shows on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries and Mythology were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Aidan Connolly. This episode was written by Molly Quinlan and stars Molly Brandenburg, Vanessa Richardson, and Richard Rossner.